So I'm going to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up again in verse 9. Thank you, choir, worship team, for leading us this morning. Here we come to the last two Beatitudes that Christ Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we ended talking about blessed are the peacemakers, but we're going to spend a good portion of our time talking about that very same beatitude again this morning. So today, we're going to finish by looking at peace and persecution because these two necessarily have to go together. So... I was thinking this week as I was studying about entrance requirements. As many people read the Beatitudes, uh, they treat them or think of the Beatitudes as if they are entrance requirements into the kingdom of heaven. We talk about entrance requirements, there are different kinds of entrance requirements. There are entrance requirements into a nation. For instance, you may not know this about me, uh, but when I was a much younger man, I was going to serve a church in the British Isles, and I had an improper visa, and so I was denied entry clearance into the United Kingdom. I have actually been deported from Great Britain. I didn't, ha- I didn't meet the entrance requirements. Okay, There are entrance requirements. What other kinds are there? When you think about entrance requirements, what do you think about? College. Do you know, just take a guess, which university has the most strict entrance requirements? You would think so, wouldn't you? Harvard is the most difficult school to get into right now. But, strangely enough, they don't really have entrance requirements. Isn't that odd? Uh, uh, Let me just read you some things. Harvard... By the way, um, in case you were wondering, only 5.4% of all applicants to Harvard um, actually are able to attend there. There are, if you look at schools, especially Ivy League schools based on alumni, Harvard pretty much stands alone. Um, There have been eight U.S. presidents who have come through Harvard. There have been other heads of state who have attended Harvard. There have been over 130 Nobel laureates, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds important, have come through Harvard. So Harvard sort of sits on the mountaintop of what the university has produced and the difficulty that a person might have in actually attending there. I wouldn't know. I did not even try. There is no minimum GPA to get into Harvard. There's no minimum SAT or ACT score to get into Harvard. However, with that said, the average student at Harvard had a GPA of 4.1 coming out of high school. Now, if you're like me, you did not know there could be a .1 on the end of that number. (laughs) I thought four was the best you could do. And I didn't do quite that well. 4.1. On a scale of 0 to 1,600, 16 being the highest you can score on which test? The SAT. The average score 
going into Harvard is 1530. And I'm not suggesting that anyone can simply walk in off the street and begin taking classes at Harvard, even though there aren't entrance requirements, so to speak. The average student has an SAT score over 1,500 and a GPA of 4.1. High SAT scores, high GPAs are descriptive of the students who have been admitted, but technically they are not required. Okay, do you understand? You get the analogy here? The Beatitudes are descriptive of kingdom citizens, but they're not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. You see it? And once you're there, there are things, multiply that times 10 billion, what goes on at Harvard. And you get the idea. But the entrance requirement into the kingdom is 10 billion times 10 billion more difficult than the entrance requirement into the kingdom of heaven. A perfect life. Fortunately for you and I, the name Jesus is written over all of those lives who would accept him. So the entrance requirement into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus, but then the Beatitudes become descriptive of kingdom saints and citizens. The Beatitudes are descriptive of the Christian life. They're ideals we seek because they are descriptive of Jesus and descriptive of kingdom citizens, but they're not how we get in. And I just want to make sure we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll pick this up even in the new year after a break for Christmas. But I want to make sure as we wrap up this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, talking specifically about these Beatitudes that we, nobody walks... If, if we walk away confused about this one thing, then I've blown it and we'll have to do the whole series all over again. Okay, so are you with me? The Beatitudes do, are not entrance requirements. They don't describe how we get into this thing called Christianity. We can't do these things to become a part of God's family. Do you see? I mean, just this is so important. Because if, we, if anybody thinks that, then it's the opposite of what Jesus spent his entire ministry teaching. These are not descriptive of how we get in. Um, I was reading this week about how babies learn, and my youngest is, will be six years old tomorrow. My goodness gracious. And so I don't have a little baby anymore. I say that, and we're going to go home, and Kristen's going to be like, we should, we should get a baby. And no, we shouldn't get a baby. I love them, especially when they're at your house, okay? I'm just kidding. I love babies. But what's fascinating about babies, one of the many things that are fascinating about babies is how babies learn. Like there have been, I mean, clinic, a lot of clinical studies that have shown that the way that babies learn, especially under uh, uh, the age of one, is that when they are within 18 inches of your face, especially a mama's face, that this strange, this peculiar attachment takes place. And that the first way that we learn as people is through emulation. And so you've done this, all of you have done it, you know you have, and you've seen other people do it. You chuckle when you see other people do it, but we, most of us were those people. You're holding a baby, and then the next thing that happens is you're making ridiculous noises. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, he's so cute. 
who's a big boy? Like if you don't have a baby in your hand when you're saying that. But put a baby in somebody's hand, it's okay. And babies learn to emulate even those things. And, and, and what will happen is a baby, you watch. A baby, some of you guys, some of you guys have little grandbabies. Holding your grandbaby, she makes a cute little noise, and what do you do? You make the noise back. Right? But then what happens is you begin to make noises, and the baby emulates those. It's how we learn. It, it's being so. Here, here's the beatitudes. Okay, think of it like this: It's the father bringing us in close, like we would bring a baby in close. And we're look, we're coming in close and looking at the Christ life. That's the beatitudes. It's the life of Jesus, descriptive of Him. And we're being brought in close the way a, the way a young daddy does with his child. And we're brought in close to see it so that we can turn around and then do what? Imitate. The Beatitudes are nothing more than us imitating the way that Jesus interacted with people and his father. And every single one of the Beatitudes has been descriptive of a character trait that Jesus demonstrated for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, but the next part is so key. Falsely on, what are the words? What does it say? On my account. Falsely on my account. Rejoice. This is weird. What follows next, verse 12, is incredibly strange. Rejoice and be glad. But he just said, you, people are going to revile you and hate you and say nasty things about you. And then Jesus turns around and says, celebrate that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Ephesians chapter 2 um, because one of the themes in these scriptures, specifically throughout the New Testament, is this idea of peace. So we're going to key in on peace and the results of being a peacemaker. That's where we're headed this morning. But Paul really shines some light. In fact, flip over there. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 2. You're going to see this in your copy of God's Word. There's an important word here. And if you are the type that underlines, highlights, circles, things in your Bible, whether you have a pen, pencil, what, whatever you got, crayon, lipstick, there's some words here that are worth underlining and highlighting so that we see the theme of what Paul is talking to people about. Or just make a mental note right now. But look at Ephesians chapter 12, uh, 2, but pick up in verse 12. And everywhere you see the word or hear me say the word peace, I want you to key in on that. I want you to pay attention to what Paul is teaching us here. He says, remember that at one time that you were at that time separated from Christ. Raise your hand if at one time in your life you were separated from Christ. It's all of us. 
Right? Paul is writing to believers. He says, remember, at one time, you and Jesus were not on good terms. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. As believers, we have been grafted in to this, to this family of God. That's what Paul's saying here. Having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, huge conjunction. But, but, oh, that's who you were. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were separated, you were alienated. He says, you once were far off, have been brought near. How have you been brought near? He tells us. By the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our, what's the word? Peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making what? And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached what? To you who were far off and what? You're, I'm losing you. You started off like exuberant about saying peace. As we've said it a couple of times, you're like, that sounds like a lot of work to say the word peace all over again. Come on, we can do better here, okay? He came and preached what? Peace. To you who were far off and what? To those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer, he began by saying, you guys were alienated, separated, there's hostility. But he says now, because of the peace that Jesus preached and brought through his death on the cross, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And this is key. We're going to come back to this very theme at the end of our time. And members of the household of God. Verse 20, he finishes up, and he says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's talking about the body of Christ here. What did Jesus come to bring? Peace. And so what does it look like to be a peacemaker? Because the peacemakers, Jesus said, shall be called sons of God. Why sons of God? This is what's fascinating that we didn't have time to get into last week. This may be my favorite thing that I get to share with you this morning. It's fantastic. Flip over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This very, very interesting the second half of Luke chapter 3 is, when you get there and you just glance at it, somebody yell out the word. Genealogy. Who loves studying that, right? Most of us, we get to that and we're like, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And then all of a sudden, we realize we've skipped over about 20 names and we're done. But there's something fascinating about this one. By the time you get to verse 38, well, let's just see what, what happens. This is the last verse in the chapter. After all of these so-and-sos begot so-and-sos, they're important. I'm not saying they're not. It gets down to the, ver the end of verse 38, and it says, The son of Enos, 
the son of Seth, the son of Adam. See it? The son of son of God. There's some fascinating things in the genealogies and are worth a study. We may even crack into some of those over the next month in December. But let me just tell you, friends, nothing compares to this. The son of God. Why is that important? Because Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. And so when we read over in Matthew chapter 5 that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called by God himself sons of God. Last week we looked at blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers. And here's, what, here's where we landed about peace. That peace comes from this humongous, rich, and deep word, shalom. But at the end of the day, peace equals restoration. Okay? That peace equals restoration, God's intended relationship with his people. That's the restoration we're talking about. What are we being restored to? Watch this. Sonship. This is a game changer. We are being restored to sonship with the Father. We're being restored to the Father as sons and daughters. This is really the ultimate blessing because it's a return. It is a full restoration to the way we were meant to live in the first place, which is the way that Adam and Eve interacted with their father in the garden. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are the restoration makers... Why? Because those people will be restored to the way that it was intended to be at the very beginning as sons and daughters of God. Why? Because Adam was called the son of God. Peacemakers are people who, because they have been restored to their rightful place as sons and daughters of God and by God, are used by God to restore others to their rightful place in the family of God as well. That is what a peacemaker does. So what a great reminder for each of us this morning as we're getting through and winding down in this section on the Sermon on the Mount that in the Beatitudes that the ultimate blessing is really to be called a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God because it's really a return to the way that we were created to live in fellowship with the Father in the first place. It's full restoration. Dear ones, that's where we're headed. We have been restored to the Father. But someday, that restoration will be full and final. There will be no distance between us. Right now, there's physical distance, maybe not spiritual distance. But when you go home for lunch today... You will not sit down at a table with Jesus. I know he's in the room through the Spirit, but can we all agree that that day, in the future heaven, in the future kingdom, things will be different. What are we talking about? Restoration. The way it was with Adam. That's where we're headed to. We're headed back to restoration. So let me just give us a couple characteristics about peacemakers that go hand in hand with our identity as sons and daughters of God. First one is this. A peacemaker puts others first. 
A peacemaker always puts others first. The, the Hebrew word for peace we talked about is a word that we're familiar with. It's that word shalom. And shalom does not mean an absence of conflict. It doesn't mean that life is easy. It doesn't mean that we don't have conflict with other people. Um, shalom can't really be de de defined in negative terms. Peace is not the absence of conflict, rather. Shalom literally means everything that makes for somebody's highest good. All the things that make for a person's highest good. Not their preference, but for their highest good. So it's wholeness. So when we seek shalom for people, we're called to be peacemakers. Peacemaker puts others first. We seek shalom for people. The work that Jesus did on the cross, again, see, it's to bring peace, shalom to people's lives, to bring peace between them and God, this heavenly Father and man. And only those who enter into relationship with the Father through the Son will experience that peace. So what does a peacemaker do? Peacemaker puts other people first. Not in the absence of conflict, but in seeking their highest good, in seeking their wholeness. Number two, a peacemaker shares the good news. You just can't get around this. A peacemaker shares the good news. The gospel is not an option for us believers. You hear me? Chances are, I hope this doesn't condemn, but I don't mind if it steps on our toes. Chances are, you are not sharing the gospel enough. Chances are, we are not sharing the good news of Jesus enough with people. How do we know that? Look at the empty seat near you. Not that, our church, not that a full church is the point. It's not. But full lives is. Jesus, at peacemakers... Share the good news about Jesus. You know what's fascinating and, and lovely and beautiful and encouraging to me? You know what the most common title in Scripture really is for Christians? Child of God. And we read the Beatitudes that blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called what? Just another name for child of God. You know what that means? He gave you the title before you did the work. And that, if this was a race, this is a really great deal. You, you're given the trophy, declared winner, before you even lace up your tennis shoes. What he's saying to us is, this is who you are. We are people of the gospel. Peacemakers necessarily long to see other people restored to the family of God. And so they share the good news about Jesus with other people. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God, but you're already called a son or a daughter of God if you're a follower of Jesus. Or this beatitude that we're called of making peace, of introducing peace between the Father and other people. All Christians are called children of God. Therefore, we are all called to be peacemakers, whether we have the gift of evangelism or not. We have the responsibility of sharing with other people what God has done in our life. Your family is your responsibility. 
Your neighborhood is your responsibility. Your community is your responsibility, not someone else's. You owe the gospel to people you know. We owe the gospel to people who we are in relationship with. We owe it to them. Because Jesus says we are peacemakers. So we just have to live out our identity. Let me give us some keys and a couple truths about peacemakers and how to be a peacemaker. Number one is this, be at peace. These are very simple. Number one is be at peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You've got to be at peace if you're going to have peaceful relationships in your life. If you're going to be used as a peacemaker in your relationships, and you've got to be at peace with God. You've got to be at peace with yourself. You have to be a person of peace. So the first is just be at peace. If you're going to be used to bring peace into situations, so one of the questions that we can ask of ourselves, and everybody should just ask these questions about ourselves from time to time, what do they think when they see me coming? What do they think when they see you coming? I don't know who the they is in your life. But what do they think when they see you coming? When I walk into the room, do I bring a spirit of peace? Do I bring a spirit of chaos? Do I bring a spirit of division? In peaceful relationships, you have to be at peace with yourself First, when, when given, and here's another way to look at this, and this is a good, a good signal for us in our lives. When given the choice between complaint and gratitude, which do I choose most? Do we recognize that every time there's an opportunity for complaint, there's also an opportunity for gratitude? Could I encourage each of us? Because we all probably struggle with this to some degree. Could I encourage us to always opt for gratitude? You want to be a person of peace? Ask that question. What, what do they think when they, what are they mumbling under their breath when I, before I walk into the room? They see me walking down the hall. Oh, man, here we go. Let me get prayed up because I'm going to need it because I'm about to get discouraged. Let me get my spiritual armor on to deal with this brother or sister. Which should never be the case, by the way. That we should be an encouragement to one another. Opt for gratitude rather than complaints. There's always an option for both. Second key is this. After being at peace, second key is this. It's so simple. Keep the peace if at all possible. If at all possible. How many times, especially for those of us who have raised some kids... Um, we just think about one of the common phrases that we've used with our children. Um, if they have siblings. Four words that I have said more times than I wish to admit. Stay out of it. Stay out of it. Not every hill 
is a hill to die on. But brothers and sisters, some of us just by personality treat every hill like it's one we got to take. And it is worth dying on. And most of the times, the only thing that dies on some of those hills is our relationships. You want to be a peacemaker? Keep the peace when it is at all possible. It's so simple, but keep the peace. If it's possible, are we saying excuse sin? Has anybody read that in the Bible? Has anybody heard me say that? No, we're not talking about excusing sin. What are we talking about? The godly action of keeping the peace when it is at all possible. Sometimes my opinion is not needed or warranted. I hate that. Because I think I have the best opinions. And so do you. No, you don't think I have the best opinions. You think that about yourself. This does not mean, of course, we excuse sin. Don't misunderstand what the words we believe are saying about being a peacemaker is saying. What we're saying is that there are times when it's simply wise and honoring to the Father to keep the peace. Listen, if you hear one thing about this, it's this. When you speak less, your voice matters more. But when you speak about everything as an authority, your voice becomes white noise. Keep the peace, if at all possible. Don't become a person who nobody cares about your opinion. Your opinion matters. But it only matters when you choose to share it wisely. Third key about being a peacemaker is this. Pursue reconciliation. Our kids, by the way, should never wonder where they stand with us. As moms, as dads, as grandparents, as brothers, as sisters, sons, daughters. The people that we're in relationship, the people that we're blessed to be in relationship with, should hear the words, I love you, this is a conviction of mine, far too often. I tell my kids, it's not a brag, it's just... I sh- this is just what I be- how we, we try to do life. I tell my kids I love them all the time. Multiple times a day. Multiple times a day. My wife, even if we're fighting, she is going to hear from me, I love you. People don't need to wonder where they stand in relationship with us. Overuse the words, I love you. Even when you have challenges relationally, let that be the the ground that you build reconciliation on. I love you. Because I love you and I am called by Jesus himself right here in Matthew chapter 5 to be a peacemaker. I'm going to say I love you and I'm going to pursue reconciliation with you. A peacemaker works to create opportunities for relationship. Creates opportunities. John 17, chapter, uh, John 17 verse 20. Jesus, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's us in the room. 
believed in Jesus through the word of the disciples is recorded in, in the Gospels. We believed his word. What did he pray? That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Lost people will come to faith in Jesus when the church pursues reconciliation with one another. There's something here about the unity of the church that speaks to those who are not yet in. And what this means, and this is a hard thing to say, but to disrupt the peace of the body of Christ is to despise the very prayer of Jesus. Keep the peace and pursue reconciliation with one another when it's not there. To divide the body of Christ is to reject the blessings of Christ over opinions, over issues sometimes that aren't important, aren't doctrinal over issues that aren't about the purity of the body. And this, again, is not an excuse to let sin run amok in the body of Christ. May that never be the case. And Jesus is so clear on that. But he's also clear that we're to pursue and create opportunities for relationship, not more opportunities for things that divide us. We look for ways to build each other up, to build relationships. Do you want a spirit of peace? Do you want to promote peace in your home, in your family, in your place of work? Do, do, do you, are you a person that promotes peace in the body of Christ, in the church? The blessing is on the peacemakers, not on the peace-likers. And sometimes we like peace, but we don't want to do the work of making peace. There's a difference. Don't be a peace-liker, be a peacemaker. Final characteristics, I believe, of peacemakers is this, and this is what we'll spend the remainder of our time talking about. This is the fourth key. They expect and joyfully endure persecution. See, blessed are the persecutor, it follows right on the heels of blessed are the peacemakers very intentionally. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. It's not strange, it's normal. Why? Because we follow a crucified Savior. Why would we be surprised when people don't like us? Why would, be Why would we be surprised when conflict comes our way? One of my favorite preachers and authors of days gone by was a British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said, "If you what list, this is so key. He said, if you try to imitate Christ, the world will praise you. It's true. If you try to imitate Christ, the world will praise you. Why? Because the world loves religious people who do good things. Go build a hospital. People, man, that's great. They built a hospital. It's nonprofit. They're taking care of people. They're giving away food. It's, it's awesome. You'll get praised for that. But he goes on. He says... Why? Because you'll go build hospitals and you'll start orphanages and you'll do good things. But, but if you become Christ-like, the world will hate you. Because they'll be reminded of the fact that their efforts aren't enough to win the favor and grace of God. And what he's saying to us is, you will be persecuted, most likely, if you are Christ-like. If you are a beatitude man or woman. Why? Because it, 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 Christ's likeness smacks in the face of our pride. 
Every one of us wants to believe that we can do something good enough to earn the favor of God. And being Christ-like is a reminder that we can't, that it is by the grace of God that everyone who has ever been saved has been saved. The blessing here that we are promised is only for when, watch, we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness or, or for my name's sake. It is not for the sake of our political opinions. It's not for the sake of our causes. It's not for the sake of our bad attitudes. It's not for the sake of our lack of wisdom or our stupidity. And people get persecuted for those things all of the time, don't they? If you get persecuted for doing something dumb, Jesus does not say you will receive a blessing for that. You just get what's coming to you for doing something dumb. We're blessed for righteousness in the name of Jesus. He's just very clear that this blessing is for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And again, this is so upside down. One would think that this last beatitude of the language we've looked at, that if somebody is, is poor in the Spirit, if they mourn over the condition of their world and of their own sin, if they're meek and dealing with others, if they hunger and if they thirst for righteousness, if they're merciful... If they're pure in heart, if they're peacemakers, then that man or that woman should be loved by everybody. But Jesus ends this incredible list of these wonderful things, and he says, blessed are you when people hate your guts. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will become the persecuted. So peacemakers expect persecution, and we joyfully endure it. Real Christianity creates friction both in the world and in the religious. Real Christianity creates this friction. Friction creates blisters. Blisters are painful, and we'll do whatever it takes to get rid of them. Real Christianity, authentic following of Jesus creates that. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for it, for righteousness sake. What what does he say? He doesn't dress it up. Jesus says it will mean a cross. It will mean following hard after me. It will mean dying daily to yourself. It will mean persecution. He did not say if people persecute, but when people persecute. If you follow Jesus with your whole heart, it is almost a guarantee for us. This principle is in place for us that if we follow Jesus with our whole heart, there will be conflict in our lives. So how do we suffer well? How do we joyfully endure persecution for the sake of righteousness? That's the question we're after. How do we endure persecution in a way in which that will bless our Heavenly Father? There are a couple things that we don't do. Number one, we don't retaliate. We don't retaliate. Jesus says in a few short verses, we are to turn... You know the rest of the phrase. Turn the other cheek. When you're persecuted, you don't turn around and persecute others. We don't retaliate. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. We we can go round and round about that all day long, but what I believe he meant is that by the blood of the martyrs, Those who, when the church is persecuted, a purifying work of the Spirit takes place. The gospel takes root authentically. And through the gospel, as people are persecuted and martyred, we see the purifying work of the Spirit in His church. Persecution brings about purity in the body. So we don't retaliate. 
We don't retaliate when somebody persecutes us. Secondly, we don't resent. This is hard. Retaliating is an action. Resenting is something that takes place on the inside. Jesus always made things harder for us in a way, didn't he? He said, oh, you've heard it said. I love it when Jesus says, you know, you guys have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you hate somebody, you've already murdered them in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Right? That, that's a physical action. But I say to you, if you lust after her, if you lust after him in your mind, then you have already committed adultery in your heart. So not only do we not retaliate, we don't resent. Grace always requires more of us, never less. The grace of God is not shallow. It calls us to deep. When we turn the other cheek, we make sure that our hearts are pure and we don't respond with pout. We don't respond with self-pity. We don't respond with, oh, woe is me. He says, rejoice when you're persecuted. Don't retaliate. Don't resent. Third key, but do rejoice. How do we suffer? Rejoice! Rejoice! Why? Because persecution reveals your loyalty to Jesus. You think of people like Paul. You think of people like Stephen who was stoned to death. You think of Jesus himself persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you. And then they throw all kinds of insults against you. On my account, what does it show? It shows loyalty to Jesus Shows a couple of things. Number one is loyalty to Jesus. Number two, it reveals fellowship with the saints and prophets who came before us. The author of the book of Hebrews says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. There are men and women who have gone before us, who suffered well for the gospel, and we should count it an honor to be be counted among them. In the early days after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven in the first couple of centuries, persecution looked very different than it does now. And by the way, persecution happens now around the world in greater degree now than maybe any time in history. We don't see it nearly as much where we live as we oftentimes convince ourselves that we do. When people are being murdered for loving Jesus. But during the early days, especially in the part of the world that Jesus came to, if a person came to Christ, it was very likely that they would endure persecution. It was a guarantee almost. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, bless you when that happens. And it will happen. So first century audience. That's what we think of first. What did it mean to them? And Jesus says, bless you when you're persecuted. So let let me just walk us through this really quickly. You think about one of the most common occupations during the time of Jesus. In fact, it was the occupation that Jesus had. A stonemason, oftentimes called a carpenter. And this person would work with both stone and wood to create stuff. Create furniture for inside your house. But they were also... 
I don't know if there's any carpenters in the, in, in the room here. But if you're a carpenter, chances are you've made stuff for inside the house, but you've also been a part of building the house itself. That's what a carpenter would do or a stonemason would do. And, and, and so think about this. If a man who was a stonemason in the Roman Empire came to faith in Christ and he counted himself a part of the church, and in his business he was contracted to build buildings for the number one builder of buildings during his lifetime, which would have been the Roman government and empire itself. And let's just say, hypothetically, that... His boss gets a contract to be a part of building one of the local temples, which were built all of the time. But this man, this stonemason, let's just call him Bill. Bill comes to faith in Jesus. He had his life radically changed. And now he is going to be paid to build a temple to a false god. So what does he say to his boss? He says, I, he looks at his boss and he says, I, I can't. I can't work that job. The boss looks at him and says, that's the only job. So I'll get somebody that, that can. So he looks at Bill and he says, Bill, you're fired. He has been persecuted for his commitment to Jesus. We would call that economic persecution. That takes place all around the world today. Now, the same guy might also experience social persecution. There were these great feasts that would be held after sacrifices in these great temples that he just refused to build. When we read about sacrifices, especially animal sacrifices, the way I'd always imagined that is they would take the animal, they would put it on the altar, they would kill it, they would burn the whole thing up. That's not what happened. They would kill the animal. It's the blood. It's some guts. I'm just being real with you. And it's only a part of the animal that would get burned up as a sacrifice. The animal was sacrificed, but they're not going to just burn all of the meat. What happens to the meat? The meat then goes to the community to feed the community. Guess who, by conviction, does not eat meat sacrificed to idols? Bill doesn't. Now Bill's lost his job. Now Bill can't even feed his family with what is provided for the community. Not only that, but Bill's brother-in-law hasn't come to faith in Jesus. And Bill's brother-in-law is concerned about his sister and her family because now Bill has no job. He has no way to provide for his family. He can't go on government assistance because the Roman government does not like Christians. He has no way to provide for his family. He has no way to feed them. And now he has no way to protect them. He has faced economic persecution. He has faced social persecution. And now he is facing relational persecution. Why? Because he is loyal to Christ Jesus. He is living a life that calls him to stand apart. You know what that creates? Massive friction. Massive pain in a person's life. And the only thing that would get a person through, watch, this is why Jesus was so intent on telling the whole truth to his followers. He says, the only thing that will get you through is a love that is so deep, it will look like the way you feel about your family is hate. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For great is their reward in heaven. 
Persecution reveals authenticity. Paul said we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. It also clarifies something for us. It doesn't need to be clarified to Jesus. Jesus knows our heart, but sometimes we don't know our heart. And so persecution has a way of clarifying for us our own relationship with the Lord. I have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Look, folks, I don't believe that we need to pray for persecution. I don't believe that we need to ask for it. Jesus is quite clear that if we're a beatitude liver, if we're a peacemaker, then it is something that we can expect. How great an honor for him to consider us worthy of wearing his name to stand with those who have gone before. So it proves in some ways to us our own relationship with Christ. Then finally, persecution reveals relationship. Jesus doesn't allow his father, his followers, his children to suffer alone. We see in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery fervence for refusing to bow down before a false god, and everyone gathers around. Most of us know the story. They're wanting to watch these guys burn, but instead they see someone else in the fire, one who looks to them like a son of the gods. Why is that guy glowing differently than everyone else is glowing? The father doesn't allow his kids to suffer alone. His spirit is with us. It it proves to us that we're not alone. It proves that we're in relationship. It recognizes that we are never alone. Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, what he cannot gain, what he cannot lose to gain, what he cannot lose. But we're a fool when we spend our life on things that will burn up in that same fire. Students, if you live for Jesus, sold out for Jesus on your campus, you will be persecuted. College students, home for Thanksgiving break. Number one, we're proud of you. Number two, If you live sold out for Jesus on your camp, you will be persecuted. That's the state of the world that we live in. You'll be made fun of, mocked. You'll miss job opportunities. And Scripture says slight momentary afflictions. It's meaningless compared to what awaits us. It has no weight compared to the weight of glory that Christ Jesus is preparing for us to lean into during those times. And finally, we'll end with this. It recognizes a future home. This is not where we belong. Persecution, more than anything else, helps us to realize that there is some hope never disappoints because it's rooted in Jesus. We're only passing through. There is something better waiting for us. One day we will be with him and we will see him as he is. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will become the persecuted. But blessed are the persecuted for great is your reward in heaven. So let's joyfully endure when that comes for our lives. And let's be peacemakers. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I know I've, this has been a little longer today. But as your head are bowed, our eyes are closed, I just want to share with you 
This month is a month where we do stand in solidarity with the persecuted church. Today, one in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. 20% of all believers in Africa are persecuted right now. And 40% of all Christians on the continent of Asia are persecuted. Last year, 5,621 Christians were murdered for being Christians. 2,110 churches were attacked. Ninety percent of Christians who were murdered for their faith happened in the country of Nigeria alone. 80% more than five years ago. So as we ask the Lord to reveal to us, how do we be peacemakers? Could I just ask us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, could we lift up those who already are and who are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness today? As we're praying for the persecuted church and persecuted believers, if you're in the room this morning and you have no relationship with Jesus to be persecuted for, normally that might sound like a really, really odd thing to sign up for. But I hope you've heard this morning with a little bit of clarity that great is your reward in heaven when you give your heart to Jesus. So this morning we'll be down front pray with you, to introduce you to this Jesus who promises to bless you. And he will. We've experienced it. If you would like to meet him this morning, we would love to have that conversation with you. If there's anything else we can pray with you about, if God's doing something in your heart you need to talk with somebody about, baptism, church membership, there's something you need to repent of this morning. There's a relationship you need prayer over. We're here for you. I would just encourage you to be obedient to whatever God puts on your heart. Heavenly Father, we do stand and pray with the persecuted church this morning. And we, we, Lord, we want to be men and women who joyfully endure as so many of our brothers and sisters around the globe do on a daily basis. God, purify what's in us. Burn away all the things that don't matter so that our hearts belong solely to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand.